0: we're going to continue our study in the book of first peter and we're in chapter one we're looking at verse 13 and we're going to go all the way to verse 16 today uh, i'll get you a little caught up if you haven't been here peter's kind of a big deal to the early church he was the big kahuna he was the spiritual authority and he has written a letter to a collection of churches in a region that is now turkey so they, they had a need, and Peter writes this letter in response to that need. And so for the first 12 verses, Peter gives no commands. He gives no admonitions, no exhortations, nothing. He talks about, for 12 verses, he talks about the fact that God has chosen us, that God has elected us, and that he's making us into something completely brand new. Isn't that amazing? The fact that he chose us and elects us and then makes us into something new is, I mean, that is just, I'm telling you guys, I hope by the end of this sermon, you are just ready to go all out and worship for Jesus. Because you're going to have a reason to celebrate. So the, not, only, not only that, but he preserves us. So not only does he choose us, not only does he elect us, he, he preserves us, he promises us that he is going to get us to the finish line no matter what we go through here on earth. He is with us, he'll always be with us, and he's going to make sure we get to the finish line. He addresses the book in the very first verse to the elect exiles. Some of your translations say aliens that are scattered all over Asia. And we told you, elect means that God has chosen you, but exiles means that the world has rejected you. So believers have to face this their entire lives here on earth. It's this ongoing conflict that will never go away. All right, we're on team God, yay, but that means this world's not going to feel like home to us. We're exiles, okay? We have a home, this world isn't it. We have a home, but this world isn't it. And sometimes we as believers, we get real comfortable in this world. We start putting all our eggs in one basket, and this world becomes everything. And Peter's reminding us that this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Okay? So already in the first 12 verses, Peter has corrected a very false doctrine that's being taught today. Something that's becoming more and more popular, probably because people like the idea of it. And it's this doctrine that Christians don't suffer. But... I'm here today to tell you that that's baloney. It's baloney. Read your Bible. In fact, the Bible actually promises us as believers persecution and suffering for our faith. And here's why. Because the world is in rebellion against God. I don't know if you've you've been able to catch on to that. This world is in complete rebellion against God. It hates God. And, And when God came as a man in the person of Jesus Christ, the world responded by murdering him. And then Jesus promised us that the the world would treat us the way that it treated him. If you don't believe me, look at John chapter 15, verse 20. If if you're a studier of God's word, it doesn't take long to figure out that the first followers of Jesus constantly experienced suffering for the sake of Jesus. Not just suffering, but for the sake of being Christ followers, they experienced great suffering. In Galatia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Asia Minor, and, and even the recipients of the letter to the Hebrews. Man, all of them experienced suffering. Paul himself went through terrible suffering, and so did the other apostles. And I'll tell you, Paul never minced words in saying, this was to be expected by everyone who follows Jesus. Right. Not the most popular message to get people to come to the altar, but it's the truth. He didn't mince words. He said, man, if you can expect suffering in your life. In the Bible, suffering and opposition, they're, they're a very normal part of everyday life. Okay? In fact, the comfortable experience of Christians, of you and I, and here in the West, it's actually an anomaly. Because of the Christian, and I think it's, we've experienced incredible blessing here in America, because of the Christian heritage of Western civilization combined with democratic freedoms and historic rule of law, man, we have largely been left alone for our faith, for the most part. And even today, as, as Western countries are becoming increasingly post-Christian and even anti-Christian, would you agree with that? The opposition experienced by most of us today, right now, it just goes a little beyond mockery. But I do sense the writing on the wall. And I see signs that this protected status is changing and and it's changing quickly. I'm telling you, church, be ready. We have experienced great blessing. But things are changing. I told you when I first started this series, this is my favorite book in the entire Bible. Every time I've read it, I've never really connected to the persecution. But this time, as I was reading through this book and preparing this message, I thought, man, this hits home right now. This really does. I don't feel very welcome in my own country right now. And I want you to know, if this happens, it's just going to put us in the same boat as our brothers and sisters all over the world. Today, in Islamic, Hindu, and communist parts of the world, being a follower of Jesus means, at best, at best, losing your job and being rejected by your family. At worst, it can mean imprisonment, beating, and even death. Liz and I have had the privilege of being missionaries for 10 years, and we worked in certain parts of the world where it's illegal to be a Christian, and we have met followers of Jesus who have paid a huge price for for saying yes to Christ. So these things are being experienced all over the world right now by our brothers and sisters. And again, God loves you, but this world doesn't work for you. This can be a difficult message to preach in America. Overseas, they get it. If I ever went through the book of First Peter in certain parts of India or Pakistan, they're just saying, amen, amen. They've never felt at home from the moment they said yes to Jesus. That's what it means to be elect. And and that means we're we're going to be grieved by various trials. That's what Peter says. We don't have to, here's the thing, though we don't have to deny reality. We just need to accept it, and God will give us the means by which to deal with it. Did you hear me? So many Christians want to deny the reality that we're going to suffer, we're going to experience persecution. Peter is saying, don't deny the reality, accept it, and then let God give you the means to deal with it. So with everything that goes on in everyone's world, the big stuff like economic, political, moral, racial trials, we all feel that right now, don't we? All you got to do is turn on the TV and you feel the pressure and the weight of what we're going through. And unfortunately, it causes all kinds of division out there, and it's creeping into the church and it's dividing us. It shouldn't, but we see that happening. We feel the weight and the pressure that, that of all these different kinds of trials. Everyone's affected by that kind of stuff. But then even within our own life, we're going to face our own personal trials. Okay, so on top of what we're experiencing just by being human, we all, some of us are experiencing the loss of a loved one. Some of us are experiencing issues in our marriage, issues within our family, relational trials, and the list goes on and on. So you take those personal trials that we're going through and you add them on top of the trials that we, we just are experiencing by living in this world. Man, you got all kinds of various trials. Somebody say amen. <laughs> Many of you can relate to, to Peter when he says you're grieved by various trials. You, know, you can say amen to that. I, man, that's me. All kinds of stuff I've been going through. And how, how do we respond to all of this? How do we keep it together in the trials of life? We already went over it, but verse 7, it says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Tested by fire. That should be a bumper sticker for Christianity. (laughs) I mean, that's about as real as it can get. Can you relate? Feels at times and seasons in our own life that we always live in the fire. Or is it just me? Because there are times I feel like, man, God, all my life is is living in the fire. <laughs> every day I wake up, I thought yesterday's problem was so was big and huge, and then today the problem's bigger. It's like every day I live in that fire. And guess what? It's normal to feel that way. Because if you feel like you're in the fire, it isn't because you did something wrong. It's because you're an elect exile. <laughs> because you're an exile, you do not belong in this world. And in so many ways, you should expect to be in a hostile environment. So, today, that's a little uh, getting you all caught up. Today, let's dive in. We're going to pick up in verse 13. Verse 13, we see that Peter makes a really big shift. He goes from reflection to responsibility. He's gone from the indicative mood to the imperative mood. Peter's gone from stating facts to making commands, from reality to response, from proclamation to practice. That's what Peter's doing in verse 13. And here's the first thing he's going to tell you. The first command is going to be this. Focus on the coming grace and the salvation of God. Focus on the coming grace and the salvation of God. Look with me real quick at verse 13. It says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, first things first. We see a therefore, and anytime you see a therefore in the New Testament, it's saying, in light of everything that was just taught here, here's the application. Okay? Here's what you're supposed to do. It's an adverb that denotes a result or a consequence. So, since all of this is true, all that has been written so far, here's what you need to do with it. Here's the consequential result of it, therefore. You following me? And what is what has Peter said already? Well. He said God chose you, verse 1 and 2. God's given you a living hope, verse 3, and it's a hope that will go on and on into an inheritance that is incorruptible forever, verse 4 and 5. And even though you suffer for a little bit here on earth, you're going to go through some trials, verse verse 6 and 9. You have what the prophets predicted, what the preachers proclaim, and what angels ponder. That's verse 10, 11 and 12. Therefore, here's what you need to do about it. Are you ready? Prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. This means to gather up all loose thoughts, to gird up your minds and thoughts, to concentrate and focus your attention upon your coming salvation. It means to pull your thoughts together and have a disciplined mind. Now, some of your translations say, gird up the loins of your mind. That's what the King, James, King Jimmy says. Gird up the loins of your mind. I, I remember my grandpa loved First Peter. And now as an adult, I probably understand why. My grandpa was a survivor of concentration camp during World War II. And First Peter was his favorite book. And I remember any time he would come and watch us, mom and dad were leaving, grandma and grandpa would come, he would always go through the book of First Peter with me. I think my grandpa gave me a love for verse by verse, because that's what he would do. And so he would always, whenever he got to this part, he would say, gird up the loins of your mind. I didn't know what that meant. I'm sure most of you have no idea what in the world I'm talking about. And so I, I remember when grandpa was teaching this, I, just, I looked at him and I said, uh... Hey, Grandpa, this is to guys, right? He says, it's to everyone. I don't know how... I thought guys had loins. You know, I I didn't... And I tried to tell him, it's for guys, right? We gotta... Because we, you know, we have loins. And he just looked at me and said, I don't know what you're talking about. This verse is for everybody. And he explained to me, you know, that the men in those days would wear long robes, almost like dresses. Now, I don't know if you've ever worn... Well, probably the ladies have. Guys you've probably never wore a dress and that's okay that's good actually but you probably wore a robe at one time in your life i told you last week i had the privilege of speaking at north point bible college graduation and this verse came alive to me this week because i wore this long robe and i was walking up stage tripped on my robe fell uh, face first into the stairs had to get up and kind of laugh it off and tell everyone we're good carry on carry on It's hard to do something in a long robe, right? So grandpa explained that to me. In those days, all the men would wear robes and they couldn't do a lot of physical activity. And so what they would do is they would take their robe and they would tuck it under their belt when they were ready to work or when they were gonna go run, I guess. (laughs) Whenever they were going to do any kind of physical activity, that's what they would do. So I took that literally. And so I would wear a belt in school, and I would take the my shirt, and I would tuck it in my belt, but I wouldn't tuck it in my pants. So it would just go through the belt, and, you know, the rest of my shirt would stick out. I remember my teacher at one point saying, Justin, what's, what's going on here? <laughs> you got to make a decision. Tuck in your shirt or or, or leave it untucked, but... Don't do whatever you got going here, and I would look at her and say, "I'm girding up my loins." <laughs> okay <laughs> she get it? So my dad did get called, and the teacher you know said, "Mr. Hansen, we don't know what what your son means by this, but he needs to stop girding up his loins. <laughs> this This letter was not written to guys wearing Levi's <laughs> all right so <laughs> The modern equivalent of this verse would be this. Roll up your sleeves. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. Or or simply put, get ready. Get mentally prepared. Pull in all the loose ends of your thinking and get rid of anything that would hinder you uh, going forward. That's pretty clear, right? Gird up the loins of your mind. Think clearly. How do you live for Jesus Christ in a world that is so hostile towards him? Well, it's going to begin in your mind. It always begins in the thinking, the thought process. And then it moves from the mind into the actions, the conduct. And then it should end with a firm resolve. But it always starts right here. And here's what's crazy about the world we live in today. Secular society gets this. They understand that everything starts right here. That's why they're sending all kinds of messages to our kids from a very early age. Man... Second thing he says is be sober-minded, okay? So two things here. Number one, it means not to become intoxicated with drugs or alcohol of any kind. We know that. But it means a lot more. The idea isn't just don't be drunk, but rather think clearly and be morally decisive. Think clearly and be morally decisive, all right? So to be self-controlled in mind and behavior, to be controlled in all things, not given over to indulgence, license, or extravagance. Metaphorically, it means not to lose spiritual control by getting swallowed up in the world's sinful systems. What, what the world is teaching is creeping into the church <laughs> because we don't have a foundation built on God's word. You know why we preach verse by verse? Because this is the foundation right here. Who has the authority over the church? It's God, right? Not Pastor Justin, not Pastor Enos, not the board. Who has the authority? Whose church is this? It's God's. And what's the best way for him to exercise that authority is to speak to the congregation. How does he speak to the congregation? Through God's word. That's why every single Sunday, we commit to verse-by-verse preaching because we believe that we need that foundation. I won't give you a history lesson, but you look at the American church, you're gonna see that sometime after World War II, it became really popular and famous that we're gonna leave certain parts of the Bible out so that we can draw a bigger crowd. And maybe the intention was good. I just want people to come. I want them to hear about the love and the grace and the mercy of God. But all these years later, we're suffering the consequences of that because we've got a bunch of people who don't know God's word. And so when they hear something that sounds pretty good out in the world, They say, well, that sounds pretty good. I'm going to apply it to my life. No, 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 no. This is the foundation to which everything needs to be built on. God's word. Jesus is the answer. Remember that song from the 80s or the 90s? (laughs) Never mind. Proverbs 23.7 says, For as he thinks within himself, so he is. You have to have a sober mind. He's saying, uh, when you, you know, if you think about it, when you get very emotional, sometimes emotional people can act like a drunk person. Have you ever, have you ever been around a drunk person? Don't answer that. Um, I, I worked at, as a security guard at the Holiday Inn in Springfield, Missouri, while I studied at Central Bible College, and pretty much my job was to deal with all the people that got drunk uh, at night. So those that had too much to drink, and I had to go and try to talk to them, and if I couldn't figure it out, we had to call the police. And I remember, you'd be surprised, this, this hotel had a waterfall in the atrium. Beautiful waterfall. And for some reason, when people had too much to drink, they thought this waterfall was a swimming pool. And I can't tell I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I had to deal with that exact situation, somebody getting drunk and getting into the waterfall, I would have been a millionaire. I could have paid for my school. And I would have to talk to them, and I would have to say, look, this isn't a pool, and I would get, yes, it is. <laughs> no, it's not. You need to put your clothes back on. You need to get out of the waterfall, and you need to go sober up. Because sometimes when you're, when you're with drunk, and they get really emotional. That's what I've learned. When somebody's intoxicated, they're very emotional. You know, when I would tell them it's not a pool, I would get all kinds of crazy responses. You're a mean person. No, I'm just... I need you to get out of the waterfall. This is a pool. No, it's not. It's a waterfall. No, it's a pool. Okay, I can't. There's no talking to them. They're emotional. They're intoxicated. Peter's saying that when you get emotional, sometimes you can act like a drunk person. Being sober-minded, get your head in the game. How many of you played sports? It's a, you heard a coach say, get your, get your head in the game. I was one of those players that constantly, if I struck out or made a mistake, I would, I would not have my head in the game. All I could think about was the mistake, and I would get highly emotional. I hate to watch home videos. You know, mom and dad would record me and everything. I hate it. Because I was that athlete, if I made a mistake, you could just see i start welling up and start crying. I can't even watch it. I'm yelling at the TV, get your head in the game! And my coach would have to do that to me always. Justin, will you think? Because by the time I got my head in the game, the guy I'm supposed to be guarding has already scored 10 points. Because I'm, fo- I'm so emotional that I'm thinking about the one mistake I made, and now I'm making all kinds of mistakes. Peter's saying, don't get too emotional and don't lose your mind. Mark Driscoll says, your emotions are like a sail and your mind needs to be like a rudder. Nothing wrong with emotion. Nothing at all. Nothing wrong with passion if it's directed. If not, it's going to lead to destruction. <laughs> I heard Mark Driscoll preach on this and, and he, I, I credit him for this next part, but he says there's some things that go with this thought. And number one, for the Christian, worshiping includes your thinking. I know I'm talking to a bunch of Pentecostals, so I'll say it again. (laughs) For the Christian, worshiping includes your thinking. Okay, Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, that's your emotional life, with all your mind, that's your mental life, with all your soul, that's your spiritual life, and all your strength, that's your physical life. We usually think of worship uh, really in just two, two ways, emotional and spiritual. And that's typically what we as humans do. I felt the presence of God. What a powerful service. I felt the presence of God. I was moved to worship because I felt the presence of God. That led me to the altar. I felt the presence of God. But hear me, worship includes not just your feeling, but your thinking. Okay, we worship God with our minds also. That's why another writer in the New Testament... Guy, you might know of the Apostle Paul, he can say, Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you can discern what God's will is. Thinking is a big part of our worshiping. I don't hear a lot of amens. Thinking is a big part of our worshiping. Once heard a student tell me, a Bible college student, I don't need to read the Bible because I live it, I pursue Him through worship and prayer. I experience the Bible. I don't need to know the Bible. Wonderful. You need a love, but here's the truth. (laughs) You need a love studying and reading God's word. We need to worship as a whole person, and that includes thinking and feeling. There's nothing wrong with feeling. God God connects to our feelings. He connects to us, to our emotions. He also connects to our minds. He gave you a mind. He created you with a mind, and He wants you to use the mind. He wants to be worshipped through your mind, okay? So we need to worship as a whole person, not just feeling. We also need to worship God through thinking. Number two, thinking precedes doing. Thinking precedes doing. When something happens in our life, we think, man, when something terrible happens, I gotta do something really quick, I gotta do something. What's the first thing you do when, uh, when a tragedy hits you? You just wanna do something. Or when you're angry or you're upset with somebody, you just wanna do something. And so you get online and you post something you later regret, right? My dad used to always tell me, think before you do. Think before you do. When I heard Mark Driscoll preach this message, he said he used the soldier as an analogy. Ready, set, aim. Or ready, aim, fire. There we go. (laughs) I wasn't a soldier. (laughs) Ready, ready, aim, fire. But there's a reason it's in that order. It's not ready, fire, aim, right? It's ready, aim, fire. I thought that was pretty good. When we're emotional and we have to do something, we usually do something we later regret. You've got to think before you do something. I've seen marriages destroyed over Facebook posts. I have. I have counseled couples that were on the verge of of mending their, their marriage, working it out, and then one of the spouses goes and posts something stupid online. Now, they'll go and erase it, but it's too late. It was posted online for everybody to see. I have literally seen a marriage fall apart over a Facebook post because somebody didn't think before they did something. Number three, he says, mindless Christianity is a problem. Mindless Christianity is a problem. Peter's telling us that if we're going to make it in this world as elect exiles, if we're going to survive, we need to be sober-minded. That would mean we can't be people who don't exercise our ability to think. Some people who love Jesus don't discipline their thinking, they don't study, and they're completely driven by emotion. But as Christians, we are told to use our minds. You can't just be driven by a feeling. You can't just be driven by emotions. You can't do that. You won't make it in this world. Too many people in the church today are being led by some crafty, charismatic YouTube sensation and not God's word. I cannot tell you how many well-intentioned believers I see being led astray because they don't practice deep thinking and they're too quick to believe whatever is the new sensation or whatever social platform they're following. We can't be sober-minded if we're not willing to be deep thinkers. God has commanded us to use our minds. Our churches sometimes today struggle with lots of emotion and very little reason. Lots of feeling but not lots of thinking. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he's going to say this later on. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Church, we need to wake up. We are in a battle. We are in a war. There is an enemy who wants to destroy us spiritually and wants to rob people of the opportunity to experience Jesus Christ, mercy, grace, and eternal life. That's just the way it is. There is one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ, and there is a real enemy out there who is really trying to stop and prevent that from happening. This is a war. Our church needs to wake up right now. Amen? We need to wake up. The Bible, it's it's like a well. You get the best water from the well, not by widening the circumference of the well, but by digging deeper into it. It's not just the way we begin the Christian life, it's the way we grow in the Christian life. Renewing our minds in God's word is gonna require us to discipline our minds, but it's gonna produce for us a love for God. Get into God's word. It's going, to, it's going to be what transforms our hearts so that obedience to God becomes our desire. It's not going to be through a program that you change, your life has changed. It's going to be by digging in to God's word, knowing God's word, applying God's word to your life, and you will see real-life transformation. Yes, right. Again, I know I keep saying it, but that's why we preach God's word. Yes. That's why. Because I could preach a lot of feel-good messages. I could. I could preach really funny messages that might draw people in but I want to see life transformation, and I got nothing that can do that except for God's word. So if I'm committed to God's word, I I know we're going to see real life transformation in this church. Being sober-minded. It's an image of not being drunk when it comes to spiritual things, right? You need to be alert. Now, here's where it gets good. So, here comes the main verb, and for the first time in this letter, it's an imperative. It's a command. He says, hope fully, or fix your hope completely. So, so the first command in this letter, it's an action you do with your mind and your heart. It's, it's a command to hope. Hope is not an action of the body, it's an experience of the soul. Peter's commanding you and I to experience hope. Okay, it's, and, and here's what you need to know about biblical hope. It's It's not an uncertain destiny, but a certain destination. Okay, that's why Hebrews 6.19 says that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I have hoped for a lot of things that have never come to fruition. I told you before, I hoped for, for four years in a row that the Bills would win a Super Bowl and it never happened. Okay. And, and you hope, all, all the teenage guys hope when they go ask a girl to go get a milkshake or whatever they, they do now for a date, watch a movie, play mini-golf, they hope that she'll say yes. Or they, they hope, a student hopes that he'll graduate. A, uh, a, a bride hopes for her wedding, right? Or, or her uh, man of... What am I looking for? The knight in shining armor, there we go. You know, we, we hope for things, and that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll, we'll experience that. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a certainty. Yes. Biblical hope is something that is going to happen. There's a difference between uh, the way we hope and biblical hope. It's the main verb, the main clause in this verse, okay? Because the first two things that we talked about, uh, prepare your mind, that was the first one, then the, and then being sober-minded, that's the second one. And then comes the predicate, hope fully, which means that preparing your mind and being sober-minded are means to the end of the main thing, the big thing, and that's hoping. Set your hope fully. Are you excited? Because I am. (laughs) Finally, Peter tells us what the object of the hope is. Here it is. He's going to tell us what we're hoping in, and that's the grace of God. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes back, and he is coming back, he is coming back. He promised he would come back, and he will. And he's going to bring grace to the people of God. Grace is on the way. Hope is on the way. So hope, or hope, well, hope in it. Hope is here right now. But hope that grace is on the way. Hope fully in God's grace. There's something that's coming down the line and you need to think about it, is what Peter's saying. In fact, put all of your hopes in that basket. Put everything you got in that hope that Jesus is coming back. All right? Peter said, I saw him, you haven't seen him yet, but set your hope on the day that you will see him. We will see Jesus, he's coming back. Verse 14, it says, focus on obedience. And this really goes with verse 15 and 16 as well. But I wanted to talk about it real briefly. Verse 14 says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay? So Peter moves from what we think to what we do. But do you notice the title he gives his readers? you catch that? He uses the title children. He's connecting the reader with their Heavenly Father. If you're a follower of Jesus, then Peter's connecting you right now to your Heavenly Father. You are children. Not just children, though. Children that are obedient. Moms and dad, you love love obedient children, don't you? I don't know anything about that. (laughs) As obedient children. I love the way the message says it. It says, As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. I grew up as a pastor's kid, and that was good most of the time. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, a bad thing. Wherever I would go, though, I would hear this. Oh, that's Justin Hansen. That's Jim Hansen's son. And I hated that, especially when I was at Northwest University with Enos, and I was getting threatened to get expelled from the school. <laughs> I didn't like hearing, oh, that's, I could hear him talking in the room next to me. That's Justin Hansen in there? You know whose son that is, right? That's Jim Hansen's son. Great. There was this pressure sometimes being a pastor's kid, but it's a good pressure, I think, to have sometimes. You know, I didn't want to wreck our our name. I didn't want to wreck the name Hansen. I I had to conform to some kind of standard, really, and that wasn't a bad thing. I heard a preacher recently share this story. He said, In the days of Alexander the Great, one of his soldiers was caught deserting in a battle. And that soldier was brought before Alexander the Emperor. He heard the charges and he said to the young soldier, Young man, what is your name? The young man looked up and said, My name is Alexander, sir. And the Emperor was taken back and, and he became angry. And he said, Soldier, you either change your behavior or change your name. If you're going to bear my name, Alexander, I want you to be brave. Isn't that something? We bear the name of God. We are children of our Heavenly Father. He uses the word conformed. It means to be shaped by or fashioned after. So following Jesus, you need to know this, is countercultural in every society. Every society, it's countercultural. Right now, we're very countercultural. In some cultures, it's the scriptures' teaching on marriage and sexuality that offends people. In others, it's the emphasis on grace and generosity and giving away power. Sometimes it's Jesus' emphasis on uh, the equality of all people, as made alike in the image of God. And sometimes it's God's authority over His creation, defying our innate desire to be our own gods. The Bible is countercultural. Worldly indoctrination is taking place all the time. It's taking place through education, through entertainment, through social expectations, etc. It is happening all around us. And here's what's so sad is many believers, they're completely unprepared to face the doctrine of a society that believes faith in God is a personal, private thing with no little bearing on the public atmosphere or sphere. All regions are valid paths to discovering one's own fulfillment, Have you guys heard this stuff before? The purpose of life is to enjoy yourself by finding what makes you happy over against what family, church, or society tells you. The human person can be reinvented and recreated in line with whatever identity a person chooses. We are being indoctrinated every single day. There is pressure to conform to the world, and we must learn to see these things, to see these other doctrines on display in our society. And one way to do that is to know your word. Know your Bible. There's always going to be pressure to conform. There's always going to be some, something that will try to, to see if we really believe what we confess. We have to recognize it as a plan of the enemy, and, and we need to fight the good fight of faith. Don't conform. Don't give in to the pressure to sin. It may be hard, but we have the power of God within us to fight and to win, and we need to be transformed and allow Jesus Christ to lead. Church, we can do this. Fathers, we can do this. Mothers, we can do this. Sons, we can do this. Daughters, we can do this. We have the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ living within us. We do not have to conform to society. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect How about Ephesians chapter two, one through three? We we've preached through Ephesians and Romans. Says, And you were dead in in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Peter's saying, don't think like you used to. When you gave your life to Jesus, something changed. Something happened. You experienced new life. And now he's saying, you better reflect the God that saved you. I am getting sick and tired of of hearing messages and, and sermons and books being written that downplays sin. We can focus on grace and mercy without downplaying sin. We don't have to downplay sin. The Bible never did. The Bible makes a big deal out of sin. It makes a big deal out of our conduct, our behavior, what we do. We don't have to downplay mercy and grace by, or we don't, we don't have, by, by lifting up grace and mercy, which we should do. We should talk about grace and mercy. We don't have to downplay sin. The Bible talks a whole lot about you, how we should act, what we should do in life, what our behavior should be. Remember, we reflect the God that saved us. Verse 15 through 16, focus on holiness. Verse 15, it says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Verse 16, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Children inherit the, the nature of their parents. God is holy, therefore as his children, we should live holy lives. <laughs> That's a pretty big command that Peter just gave us. I loved my wife's message last week. She, she commented on the fact that kids do what they see mom and dad do. It's true. It's true. Allie was scrolling through her videos today. She hooked it on the big TV and was scrolling through her videos and she got to one of the Christmas videos and I couldn't help but laugh because we give our kids hot chocolate on Christmas morning. We give them special mugs and I was sitting on the couch with my right leg over my left knee and I was taking sips of coffee and right next to me was Asher and he was watching me and doing the exact same thing with his hot chocolate. He had his right leg over his left knee and every time I would sip, he would sip. He kept looking up at me and if I ever i would laugh he would laugh he was doing exactly what dad does right children inherit the nature of their parents and now peter's saying you better be holy that's a pretty big command so let's talk about what holiness is as as we get ready to close up what does it mean to be holy do you know that the word holy alone is the only word in the bible that is used to the third degree to describe god the only word both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You will never find in the Bible, merciful, merciful, merciful is the Lord God Almighty. You won't find powerful, powerful, powerful is the Lord God Almighty. Or even loving, loving, loving is is the Lord God Almighty. But what you will find in the Bible is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is to be set apart and consecrated. In fact, there's two words in Hebrew translated holy, or, or there's two words. and I'm going to talk about the Hebrew word, which is, translates holy. It's kadosh. I don't know if I'm saying that. Troy, am I saying it right? I'm getting the thumbs up. Yes, kadosh. Sounds like I'm speaking Klingon, but it's, it's Hebrew. Kadosh. And the Greek word is agios. I don't know if I'm saying that. I'm going to look over at Professor Darren here. Am I saying it right? Agios? Agios? Yeah, he's going to get... That probably means I'm not saying it right. He's just nodding. <laughs> Both mean, mean separated or cut away from. So when God told the Israelites that He was holy, He meant that He was different from them. Separated from them. He was unique. He was one of a kind. That's what he says in Exodus 15:11, he says, "Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders?" God was different. He was separated. You need to understand that God is is both the source and the standard of holiness. So when you study the Old Testament, you're going to see that, that whenever Israel got in trouble, it's because they forgot the absolute otherness of God. That's when the Hebrews started getting in trouble. They started to think about God pretty casually, like a slightly higher version of themselves. But he's totally different, completely different. Isaiah fifty five eight through nine it says, "My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. For as heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts." Let me tell you something. God is not our peer. Do you get that? God is not our peer. Think about what Paul said in Romans nine twenty when he was asked the hardest apologetic question ever. If God knew that people were gonna rebel against God, why did he make them in the first place? In Paul's answer, who are you to reply against God? It's okay to have questions. I'm not saying you can't have questions. God's a big God, he can handle it. But at some point you just need to bow to God. He's the alpha and the omega, the great I am, the transcendent, it means you you give him a certain uh, reverence He's not your peer. He's holy. He's different. He's set apart from everything else. There is nothing that even comes close to comparing to our God. Holiness also meant separated. Separated from what? Well, separated from all the stuff in this world that would make us impure. The Israelites had all of these regulations to keep them from entering the presence of God with any kind of defilement because God was absolutely pure. Absolutely pure. Totally perfect. No defilement. Holiness is the perfection of all that is good. You can think of it as wholeness, which is where we get our English word. Holy, perfect goodness. Perfect justice. Perfect love. That's our God. And that leads me to the most magnificent thing about God's holiness, which is Jesus. Jesus. This is where I wanna end today, God's holy son. Bible said Jesus is holy. His holy son came to earth. His holiness though didn't destroy us, it healed us. It healed us. Think about that. Jesus was not only holy in his purity, but in his love, and his power, he's holy. That means you and I, we get to adore this Jesus, this holy God. Do you adore Jesus? And I'm telling you how you and I adore God, it needs to be on a whole nother level from how we adore other things in life. I absolutely love and adore my wife Liz, but not like I adore my savior, not like I adore God. I adore my two, my three children. They're all pretty cute. (laughs) Wow. I adore all three of those Rugrats. They make life fun. I adore them, absolutely adore them. If you're a mom and dad, you could relate. But I don't adore them on the same level. I adore God. It's like when I tell my wife, "I love the Chicago, I mean the Cincinnati Reds. I love the Cincinnati Reds." Liz gets so mad at that. She says, "Use another word besides love. You love me. You don't love the Reds." You're right, Liz. I love you. <laughs> not the reds. I like the reds, but I love Liz on a whole other level, right? When we adore God, it's on a whole other level. And then Peter says that the holiness of God calls for a response from us, but he who is, who is holy or he who has called you is holy. You also be holy. The life you live should be reflective, reflective of the God that you love. Your life should reflect Jesus. I love what J.D. Greer says. He says, sometimes we talk about God as if he wanted to be merely the top of our list of priorities. Our devotion to God should be a whole different kind. You think God is at the top of my list. What list, he says? God gets his own list. (laughs) Nothing else in your life created the universe that you live in and died for your sins. God gets his own list. He says, Jesus isn't your co-pilot. He created and he owns the plane, and the air it flies in, the law of gravity it defies. He's not your BFF, he's not your homeboy, He's, he's holy, he's holy. And that should change the way we worship him. I told you, I've seen people go crazy at a sports game. I am a huge sports nut. I love going to sports games case any of you ever have tickets that you cannot go to, and you need to find somebody to take those tickets off your hand. Your pastor loves sporting events. And I've seen grown men cry at games. I may or may not have cried at a baseball game when Ken Griffey Jr. slid home to beat the Yankees in 1995. I've seen grown men cry. I've seen grown men stand to their feet and yell at the top of their lungs. And sometimes it's crazy when you come to church and you watch men or women worshiping God and just sitting there. Psalms 47.1 says, clap your hands, all you people, shout to God with the voice of triumph. Psalms 35.27 says, may those who delight in salvation shout for joy. 1 Timothy 2.8, I command men everywhere to lift up holy hands. These are commands. I don't want to hear it's not my personality to get really crazy worshiping. I don't want you to like, I'm not asking you to do cartwheels down the aisle or anything. But get excited when you worship God. Get excited. Not my personality, that's baloney. I want you, I want every man and woman and child and youth student to get energized and enthusiastic about worshiping God. I don't want to hear I don't feel like it because it doesn't matter what we feel, he's worthy of it. You don't worship based on what you feel like, but you worship based on what he's worthy of. And he is worthy of your worship and your praise. I love the way the Phillips translation says this. It says, in every department of your life, be holy. God wants it all. Every single department, compartment of your life, your heart, he wants it. He doesn't want a closed door in any area of your life. You need to surrender every single area of your life, the way you talk, what you watch, the way you conduct yourself, your behavior. He's telling you be holy because your heavenly Father is holy. Father God, we love you and praise you and worship you. We are so grateful for the fact that we are called your children. We can call you Father. So God, I pray our lives would reflect our love for you, that the world would see our love for you. That's my prayer for everyone in this room, that they would experience the love of the Father and reflect the love of the Father in their life. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.